I'm Ayman Mohideen in for Alex Wagner, who also uh, has the night off. Last night, the campaign for Nikki Haley sent out uh, this cryptic message to reporters. Haley set to deliver state of the race speech in her home state of South Carolina. And right now, polls show Haley trailing Donald Trump in her home state by almost 30 points. And so, as you can imagine, rumors spread that maybe, just maybe, Nikki Haley was preparing to drop out of the presidential race. And then today, Haley got out there and said this. South Carolina will vote on Saturday. But on Sunday, I'll still be running for president. I'm not going anywhere. People have a right to have their voices heard. And they deserve a real choice, not a Soviet-style election where there's only one candidate and he gets 99% of the vote. We don't anoint kings in this country. We have elections. And Donald Trump, of all people, should know we don't rig elections. That is Haley's new message, I guess. I mean, it doesn't matter that she is on track to lose her home state by a bigger margin than any presidential candidate in modern history. She is staying in this race. And to put her money where her mouth is, the Haley campaign is now spending more than a half a million dollars running this new ad in the state of Michigan, where Republicans will choose their candidate next week. Congress is the most exclusive nursing home in America. Washington keeps failing because politicians from yesterday can't lead us into tomorrow. We need term limits, mental competency tests, and a real plan to defeat China and restore our economy. We have to leave behind the chaos and drama of the past with a new generation and a new conservative president. America needs a new generation. And honestly, that message is a little rich coming from Haley, a politician who has been on the national stage for well over a decade. But despite her empty rhetoric and abysmal poll numbers, you can see a certain kind of logic in Nikki Haley's decision to stay in this race. It's not because uh, she has a real chance at beating Donald Trump. No, there's nothing to suggest that she does at this point. Instead, Nikki Haley might be pinning her hopes on being the Duex Machina candidate, the candidate who is waiting in the wings just in case something takes Donald Trump out of this race before the Republican convention later this summer. And that is not a totally absurd idea. Right now, Donald Trump's Manhattan criminal trial is scheduled to go forward on March 25th. The federal trial over his attempts to overturn the election could begin as soon as early summer, depending on how the Supreme Court responds to Trump's claims that he is immune from criminal prosecution. And Donald Trump faces the real possibility of being a convicted felon well before Election Day. And Nikki Haley knows that. But the Trump campaign knows that as well. Today, Trump's campaign released a new memo outlining their path to win the nomination by March 19th, six days before his first trial is set to begin. Now, at the same time, Trump is actually tightening his grip on the official Republican Party apparatus. He has successfully pushed Republican National Committee Chair Ronna McDaniel out of the job. McDaniel plans to step down shortly after the South Carolina primary. And he has begun advocating for new RNC leadership stocked with loyalists, including his own daughter-in-law. And today, the Daily Beast reports that some Trump allies are actually now predicting a full purge of the RNC, driving out any members who don't pledge absolute fealty to Donald Trump. 
RNC is only bot is the only body that could actually remove Trump from their ticket after he has locked up the nomination. And Trump is about to take it over. So we are fast approaching a scenario in which the Republican Party is stuck with Trump no matter what happens to him in a court of law. Joining me now is Mark Leibovich, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of Thank You for Your Servitude. Also with me is Charlie Sykes, co-founder and former editor at large of The Bulwark and author of How the Right Lost Its Mind. Gentlemen, thank you to the both of you uh, for being here tonight. Charlie, I'll start with you. Um, I guess with this takeover of the Republican apparatus, this inevitable takeover, is there any path left for Republicans to ditch Donald Trump as their nominee at or after a conviction if he is uh, at the convention, excuse me, if he is convicted? Well, there's a chance, but it's now uh, slim and none. Um, look, you know, with with a stipulation that uh, that Nikki Haley often disappoints and that she is not going to beat Donald Trump. I have to say, though, that that I'm glad that she's continuing to to stay in this race and to continue to push Donald Trump. I mean, that there's there's short term and there's long term. The very very short term is that she's giving voices to that 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 rump in the party that is saying that is absolutely insane right now to be abandoning Ukraine and to be appeasing Vladimir Putin. Longer term, I think that she is trying to articulate that that in fact you don't not have, you don't necessarily have to be a partisan Democrat to look at Donald Trump and think this is crazy. This man is losing it. This man is erratic. This man rants and raves. This man faces all of these legal problems. So um, y- yes, it's it's a losing cause. But there might be some scraps in the short term and the long term. But the, you know, the, the medium range, it is not a pretty picture for the Republican Party. And to that point, Mark, I mean, Nikki Haley was just one, um, you know, she was on uh, another news channel earlier this evening and actually had this to say about Donald Trump. Listen. My strategy is to make sure that American that the American people have their voices heard. But it is also acknowledging the realities that he will be in court March and April, May and June. More judgments or court cases will be heard. He himself has said he's going to spend more time this year in a courtroom than he is going to be on the campaign trail. That's a problem. I'm not sure if that is a pitch to voters or an explanation as to why she's sticking around in this race. Well, what it is is a much sharper message, frankly, than anything she's had to this point. I mean, and she's that's kind of the tip of the iceberg. I mean, she's talked um, a lot about, you know, how Trump's behavior has kind of spiraled into a more unhinged place lately. I mean, frankly, this is much sharper than anything we heard from her going into the New Hampshire primary, where, where frankly, she overperformed. And look, I mean, I think her prospects are pretty bleak in South Carolina. But if you really listen to what she's been saying, I mean, there are many sort of orders of magnitude, like layers of truth to what she's been saying now compared to before. And also, there's some, you know, some hope maybe that that not only is she going to stay in the race, but she's going to fight in a very real way, not just hang around and and just sort of hope to kind of inherit the, the whirlwind if for some reason uh, Donald Trump is not viable come summer, which sounds like, you know, kind of far-fetched at this point. So I don't know. I mean, I have some hope that not only will she stick around, but she'll st- stick around in a fairly scrappy, um, purposeful way that actually serves the Republican Party in the long run. I also have to think about what all of this means, Charlie, for national security. Trump's total takeover of the party comes obviously at a very difficult time for Ukraine uh, and for opponents of Vladimir Putin. Uh, Take a listen to what former Congresswoman Liz Cheney said this uh, said about this over the, the weekend. 
I think that we have to take Donald Trump very seriously. We have to take seriously the extent to which, um, you know, you've now got a Putin wing of the Republican Party. Uh, I believe the issue this election cycle is making sure the Putin wing of the Republican Party does not take over the West Wing of the White House. Charlie, is there still a wing of the party that is willing to oppose Trump on Russia? And if so, who and where are they? There is, um, and it is shrinking and it is aging out. Um, if, if, in fact, we did have a vote in the House of Representatives, if uh, if Speaker Mike Johnson decided to do the right thing and have an up or down vote on aid to Ukraine, I think it would pass overwhelmingly um, with a substantial number of Republicans. We saw a substantial number of Republicans that voted for the Ukraine aid in the United States Senate. But having said that, this is a party that continues to be in the thrall of Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is the number one American cheerleader for Vladimir Putin. He is incapable of, it, of criticizing Putin, even after the murder of Alexei Navalny. So you can see which way the trends are going, but it's not over quite yet. There is a remnant. There's a vestige there. And you still see it in the Senate and in the House. Um, I don't want to overstate it, but... Uh, the fact that Nikki Haley is calling out Donald Trump um, along with Liz Cheney and saying, look, these are the stakes here. You know, um, put aside the buffoonery. The future of the Western world is at stake. The future of the NATO alliance is at stake. This has implications for the world, for the United States as, as well. I think it's important to have somebody who is articulating that at this point, because, again, Donald Trump controls the Republican Party, but the Putin wing takeover is probably coming, but it's not there yet. So la the last redoubt is still holding. So, Mark, to that point, I mean, you would think that if there were ever a moment for Nikki Haley to distinguish herself from Trump uh, with the national security bona fides, it would be with the death of Alexei Navalny in this moment. But I guess the question is, are there any Republican voters listening to the argument now who, or who actually care about Navalny right now? One would hope. I mean, I think Liz Cheney actually took the messaging to the next level by actually calling him the Putin wing of the Republican Party. And as um, as Dan Pfeiffer actually, I think, pointed out today on his Substack about messaging, um, you know, Republicans and Democrats, I mean, Vladimir Putin is not popular. I mean, yes, I mean, Donald Trump likes him. Tucker Carlson likes him. I mean, he has this little boomlet going, you know, among some of the celebrity, um, you know, you know, spokespeople of the party. But ultimately, this is not a system that Republicans or certainly Democrats revere at this point. So I, you know, I also would point out that, that, you know, Liz Cheney and Nikki Haley are very robust voices. I mean, neither of them is likely to be the Republican nominee anytime soon, but they're not aging out either. And they both make a very compelling case. And I think it's great that Nikki Haley, frankly, is leading with this because Trump isn't exactly ducking this issue either. He actually, I think, with on Laura Ingram earlier tonight, said, it's something to the effect that his the 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 legal judgments that it's going to cost him hundreds of millions of dollars is a form of Navalny. I mean, it was a weird construction, mm. but he's basically wrapping himself in the martyrdom of Alexander Navalny, which is absurd, offensive on many levels. And I guess it's good that there is a there is a sort of counterpoint to that within the party, at least in an active sense. So, Charlie, it feels like if, if some Republicans are just trying to wait Trump out that might not be successful with his takeover of the party apparatus. It suggests that Trumpism is poised to outlive Trump himself within the GOP for years to come. 
I, I think that's true. By the way, Mark is, is, is right. I'm not referring to Nikki Haley when I said aging out. I was thinking more of the Mitch right. McConnell wing right. of, of the United States Senate there. Um, and the, the younger senators were the ones who were more likely to vote uh, against the aid to Ukraine. But to your point, um, I do think that uh, we ought to realize that this is a longer fight, that this is not going to end in 2024, whatever the results of the election are, that uh, the Trumpism is going to be around for a very, very long time. You have a generation of young Trumpists who are coming to power, coming into politics, who are going to be around for 20 or 30 years. It is difficult to see a place for uh, a Liz Cheney or a Nikki Haley in, in the Republican Party in the near future. So again, you know, it, it's easy to get caught up in the horse race right now, what happens in the next two, three, four months. But um, this is going to be a long term struggle because the Republican Party has been for more than 80 years an internationalist party. And now it is making a turn to being an isolationist American first party that will have long term implications. And it's not going to end when Donald Trump uh, exits the stage. Yeah, very important point there. Uh, Charlie Sykes, Mark Leibovich, gentlemen, thank you to the both of you for starting us off tonight. Uh, coming up, a new report today says allies close to Donald Trump are planning on making Christian nationalism a key part of a second Trump administration. We will speak to the author of that report ahead. But first, New York's attorney general says that she is ready to seize Trump's properties if necessary to make him pay the massive fraud penalty issued by a judge last week. Trump's legal woes. That's next. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. If he does not have funds uh, to pay off the judgment, uh, then we will seek, uh, you know, judgment enforcement mechanisms in court. And we will ask the judge to seize his assets. That was New York Attorney General Letitia James vowing tonight to take uh, to make Trump pay the $355 million plus interest penalty from his civil fraud trial, even if it means taking buildings owned by the former president. But Trump appears to be resorting to alternative means to pay his legal debts. Over the weekend, the Donald launched yep, his Never Surrender Gold High Top Sneakers. They retail online for the low, low, low price of just $399. The former president would need to sell over a million pairs of sneakers to pay the penalty from his New York fraud trial, which could take I would argue some time. Meanwhile, Trump is waiting on two Supreme Court decisions that could come down at any moment. One of the issues of immunity, which will determine whether Trump's federal decision interference case or federal election interference case can resume and proceed to trial. And another deciding whether or not to uphold a Colorado decision to remove Trump 
from the ballot. Melissa Murray joins me now to discuss this and more. She's a professor at NYU Law and co-host of the Strict Scrutiny podcast. Uh, It's great to see you, Melissa. Thanks for uh, coming on the program. So Letitia James tonight saying that she is prepared to seize Trump's buildings if he cannot pay his civil fraud fine. How do you see this judgment playing out financially and politically for Trump? How much will it hurt his bottom line? Well, I mean, it's obviously a massive judgment, not just the almost 400 million in the actual penalty, but also 100 million in pre-trial interest that's already accrued and continues to accrue. So this is a sizable judgment, um, the kind of judgment that could easily be satisfied with the seizure of a massive asset like a building. Um, Letitia James has mentioned the Trump 40 Wall Street building a number of times at this point. Um, But yes, this is a sort of standard way other assets could be used to to satisfy that judgment. And this is pretty much standard operating procedure. Um, There are other judgments that are also in the offing. There's also the E. Jean Carroll defamation verdict that was about that judgment was about eighty eight million dollars. So this isn't the only financial problem he has on the horizon. So let's turn to uh, Trump's criminal exposure and the issue of immunity currently before the Supreme Court. Um, Trump has already lost on this question of immunity twice. Uh, Tanya Chutkin ruled against him. And then the D.C. Circuit upheld Chutkin's decision. What are Trump's chances of getting the Supreme Court to grant this temporary stay? I think it's very unlikely that the court is going to grant the temporary stay. I think it's also very highly likely that the court may just allow the D.C. Circuit's decision to stand. But I want to make clear here, it's not a question of what the court does. It's really a question of when the court will do it, because the longer the court spends deliberating on this question of whether or not to grant certiorari or whether or not to stay the ruling below means that Donald Trump has won. We've already blown past that March 4th deadline to begin the trial in D.C. And the further out we get from an actual trial date, the more likely it is that Donald Trump will not go on trial at all. So the Supreme Court really has a role to play here, and its role is in making a decision and doing so with some measure of expedition. If Trump is granted this temporary stay by the Supreme Court, when should we expect to see this trial getting underway? Well, if the the stay is granted, then I think all bets are off. But again, we also have the disqualification hearing that was a couple, I guess, last week or a couple of weeks ago that the Supreme Court also has to issue a decision on. And I think, again, sort of thinking about the optics here, it seemed very likely from the oral argument in the disqualification hearing that it was unlikely for the court to side with Colorado. So that's a win for Donald Trump to stay on the ballot in Colorado. And I think just making sure that the court sort of remains above the fray as this political cycle gets underway, it's very likely that the court is going to be looking for a way to deliver kind of loss to Donald Trump so it can appear even-handed. But again, a loss that comes with a big expanse of time It's not really a loss at all. In fact, it's a win for Donald Trump. Let me ask you about that Colorado decision and whether or not you think it'll come down to whether the Supreme Court believes that the states have the right to uh, basically determine if this candidate or this person who's seeking office was involved in an insurrection, because they wouldn't be saying this if it came down to an age limitation or an age qualification. They know the states have that right. But would it come down to the interpretation of it? Or why do you think the Supreme Court would not side with Colorado? 
So there were a number of different theories floated at that oral argument. One is this idea that in order for Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to be operative, Congress has to first pass a statute. It can't just happen at the state level. Congress has to first authorize it. Um, That seems to be where they were going with regard to this at oral argument, although many different theories were floated. All I will say about the idea that Congress has to first act is that There are a number of different provisions within the 14th Amendment, including Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, which authorizes Congress to act and legislate in furtherance of the aims of the 14th Amendment, which secures civil rights, equal rights, and due process rights to all Americans. This court has taken a very narrow view of Congress's enforcement power under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment. So it would be highly ironic and even a little inconsistent if it determined here that Congress had to first act before prohibiting Mm. the states from doing something when they've been very willing to let states move forward without having congressional approval in advance. Yeah, I was going to say, I would not be surprised if this court is, in fact, inconsistent with, (laughs) with many of its decisions, especially this one. But let me ask you finally, and it's kind of switching gears a little bit, still on the Supreme Court, but I do have to bring this up. Uh, This headline today, Justice Alito renews criticism of landmark ruling on same-sex marriage. Just your response to that. Well, it's not the first time we've heard this from Justice Alito. He was a dissenter in 2015's Obergefell versus Hodges, which legalized same-sex marriage across the nation. In 2020, he and Justice Thomas also issued a separate opinion in a denial of cert that raised questions about Obergefell. So this is something that we've heard from him before. It's not surprising. I think, though, in the wake of Dobbs and the overruling of Roe versus Wade, it raises real questions about whether this court has an appetite for staying the court course with established precedents or whether they will seek the opportunities to revisit cases that have been settled. All right. Um, troubling headline there from uh, Justice Alito, but again, not surprising. Melissa Murray, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Still to come tonight, a bombshell report about plans to make a second Trump administration a haven for Christian nationalism. Plus, harrowing images out of the Gaza Strip are moving people around the world to call for a ceasefire. So why did America just say no to one? More on that with Pod Save the World's Ben Rhodes next. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, whoa, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Israel's war against Hamas has reached yet another inflection point. Fighting has escalated throughout the Gaza Strip, including in the southern city of Khan Yunis, where Israeli forces have conducted raids on the Nasser Hospital 
complex, one of the last surviving medical facilities inside the Strip. Now, following those raids, the World Health Organization says Nasser Hospital is no longer functioning, which means that there are zero working hospitals left in all of Gaza. Today, U.N. agencies began evacuating critical patients out of Nasser to Rafah, where thousands have fled after Israel declared it safe, though recent airstrikes contradict that claim. Over a million civilians are squeezed into this last corner of Gaza, many in tent cities with very little food or clean water. It is images like these that are moving more and more people around the world to call for an immediate ceasefire, one that would allow the release of Israeli hostages held by Hamas and that would allow aid to get into Gaza. But not America. America says the war should go on that the images that you're seeing can keep happening. And despite reports citing unnamed Biden administration officials describing President Biden venting his frustrations about Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's tactics behind closed doors, what is reportedly said in private does not match what the U.S. is saying and doing in public. Today, the U.S. vetoed a U.N. resolution that demanded an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N. argued that a ceasefire that is not conditioned on Hamas releasing all of the more than 100 Israeli hostages still being held inside Gaza would fail to bring durable peace. So the stalemate continues. Meanwhile, things may soon get much worse for Gazans crowded into Rafah. In fact, last week, Israeli officials unveiled next steps for their ground invasion of Gaza, plans that include invading Rafah with troops. The U.S. and Western allies quickly denounced that plan for the obvious humanitarian crisis it would provoke. But Netanyahu insists that Israel will not bow to international pressure. And over the weekend, a member of his war cabinet delivered an ultimatum. The promised ground invasion will begin if all the hostages are not released by Ramadan. That is March 10th. And so the question is, what happens now? Joining me now is Ben Rhodes, former deputy national security advisor under President Obama and co-host of Pod Save the World. Uh, Ben, it's great to see you again. I'm sorry it is under these circumstances, but uh, no one better to talk to about this. Do you think there is a cognitive dissonance that is emerging here, that is reflected here in the United States veto at the U.N. Security Council today? Yeah, I think so. I think clearly the United States does not think it's a good idea for this operation in Rafa to go forward. It would be an absolute humanitarian catastrophe. It wouldn't rescue the hostages. You can't rescue the hostages at that scale militarily with that kind of operation. Um, and it wouldn't achieve its military objective of destroying Hamas. So you'd be escalating an already horrific humanitarian circumstance um, over the objections of the U.S. I think the challenge is we keep hearing about this private messaging but if the public embrace of Israel, of the Israeli government, let's be clear, too, it's not just, this is not Israel, we're talking about Prime Minister Netanyahu and his government. If that public embrace continues, if those vetoes continue, if the military assistance continues without condition, um, then essentially Netanyahu doesn't see a red light for this Rafa operation. Uh, and I think that's the dissonance here. If we don't think it's the right thing for them to be going into Rafa like this, um, at some point you have to draw a line with your actions and not just the words that you speak in private. 
And I guess that's the, the, the crux of the question I'm, I'm trying to get to here, which is the U.S. has tools in its toolbox to pressure Israel, which it has done and used in the past. If it is saying publicly to the world, we care about a ceasefire and the release of hostages and to prevent a ground invasion, Rafah, why is it not using those tools? Because what the U.S. proposed after its veto is a deal that would tie a temporary ceasefire to a hostage release, but it's also uh, notable to say that a major ground offensive in Rafah, as you noted, should not proceed under current circumstances. Well, I think what the U.S. would like to happen, what the Biden administration would like to happen is clearly a uh, a lengthy pause. Uh, we can call it a ceasefire pause um, in the hostilities allowing for the release of hostages and the provision of a significant amount of assistance into Gaza. And let's be clear, people are desperate for food and water and medical attention. And then to use that window to try to build out some diplomatic initiative here uh, that deals with the future Palestinian aspirations, future Israeli security concerns. That makes sense. I think the problem is Bibi Netanyahu is not on board with that approach. Uh, And so there's ultimately a fundamental decision here. Can you get done that type of approach of a a cessation of hostilities and release of hostages and improvement in the humanitarian situation if you don't have a fundamental break with Netanyahu. Um, And, you know, they seem to not want to change tack yet in terms of this idea that we do this private with Netanyahu, we try to bring him along to our position. Look, if they succeed in that effort, that's great. Um, I think the concern that a lot of us have watching this on the outside is we see Netanyahu getting up and kind of publicly uh, rebuking the United States, saying that Rafa will go forward, saying that there'll never be a Palestinian state. Uh, and I think under those circumstances, at some point you have to use your leverage. And I mean, let's be clear, Israel does care about this. They don't want the diplomatic isolation of the United States voting that way at the Security Council on behalf of a ceasefire. That's why they put a lot of effort uh, in tr- trying to prevent that outcome. They don't want to see, obviously, any conditions on military assistance. Uh, and so there is leverage here. The question is, do you use your leverage or do you try to use persuasion? And thus far, they're still trying to use persuasion. Bibi Netanyahu, though, I can tell you from experience, is, is often not a persuadable person, particularly when he's dealing with the Democratic president. Yeah, and it's a very important yeah, point that you. Yeah, it's a very important point that you bring up. I, look, you and I speak to a lot of uh, officials in the region, and many of them say uh, Netanyahu's political future is now tied to this war, and he does not want to end this. And so the United States is, as you said, trying to thread this needle between the public pressure and the private pressure. Um, but if that doesn't work. Can we see, and we saw State Department Matthew Miller, spokesperson Matthew Miller, saying that the U.S. would like to see a humanitarian pause before uh, Ramadan starts. Um, Is it even at this point relevant? Is that even at all possible, given everything that has happened to change course uh, and and the determination that Netanyahu has to go into Rafah? Well, you make an important point. Uh, He is in power, Netanyahu, because of the right wing, the far right wing of his coalition, these are the kind of people like National Security Minister Ben Gavir who talk about literally displacing people out of Gaza, making a Palestinian state impossible. Um, he, Netanyahu cares more about what those people think than what Joe Biden is saying to him, mm. because those are people keeping him in power. And that's the fundamental challenge here, uh, that he has an interest in the perpetuation uh, of this war. Um, again, I don't think it's likely that he's going to change course uh, and embrace the kind of U.S. P- proposal of a ceasefire uh, and release of, in exchange for release of hostages uh, and then some broader diplomatic initiative. 
you know, we'll see if that bears results. Uh, I certainly hope it does. I, I hope that uh, it, it, there is a deal that is to be had here. But right now, it doesn't feel like the momentum is moving in that direction. Right. It feels like the momentum is moving in the opposite direction. Uh, and the question is, given that reality, when you change from these kind of private words that you then read out in public, so they're not that private at this point, when do you change to, to kind of a more public position of, of wanting a ceasefire and saying that there'll be some kind of conditions uh, if there's not one reached. Yeah, we, I think Rafa is going to be the threshold for that. I would hope that it's before Rafa because you don't want it. You don't want that to move forward. You don't want to see uh, the kind of awful right. escalation that could take place in a city of a million people packed in like that. Let's hope that that doesn't happen. Yeah, and you have to keep wondering why the administration is staying on this course and not changing. Uh, ben Rhodes, please stick around. We're gonna, uh, to talk. We have a lot more to talk to you about after the break, including the fall of this key town in eastern Ukraine to Russian forces, as support for Ukraine among Republicans in Washington remains in limbo. That's next. Stay with us. This is footage put out by a pro-Russian journalist and an official at the Russian Foreign Ministry over the weekend, uh, purporting to show Russian troops lowering the Ukrainian flag and raising the Russian flag in the eastern Ukrainian town of Avdivka. With just four days until the two-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and less than a month until the Russian presidential election, Russia's capturing of Avdivka, their first major military victory in months, has handed Russian President Vladimir Putin a major political win. And the Biden administration is not being coy about why they think Ukraine lost uh, this specific battle. Here was Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, earlier today on a call with reporters from the White House. This happened in large part because Ukraine is running out of weapons due to congressional inaction. And Ukrainian troops didn't have the supplies and ammunition they needed to stop the Russian advances. Last week, the Senate passed a bill with $60 billion of aid to support Ukraine in this war. Passing the bill to the House, where Republican Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, says that he will not be rushed to pass it. He didn't even bring it to the floor last week, and now Congress is on recess. So what does this delay mean for our allies in Ukraine? And what can President Biden do if Congress won't do its job and act? Joining us again is Ben Rhodes, former deputy security advisor for the Obama White House. So, Ben, the Biden administration uh, trying or tying the loss of Advivka uh, very directly to the lack of U.S. aid because of congressional inaction. Um, is this a good strategy on the part of the White House to try to ratchet up the public pressure on GOP lawmakers holding up this aid? Yes. Uh, and look, uh, this is not hyperbole. You know, I mean, you and I, you know, sometimes arguments are made uh, to kind of put pressure on that are about some hypothetical future. It is the case that this is now an artillery battle, a small arms battle along a very long front line. Uh, and what's happened is the Russians have ramped up their capacity to turn out that kind of weaponry for their troops at the front line. They've also backfilled a lot of their supplies from North Korea, of all places. And the Ukrainians are running short. They just don't have the kind of pipeline of supplies that they need to be in this frontline battle with a larger Russian army and a larger Russian military. And so I think it's right to both point out the stakes involved here. This is not about getting the Ukrainians some new capability, the kind of thing that we were talking about 
uh, over the last year or so? Do they get F-16s or do they get this kind of tanks? This is about literally whether or not they're going to have the kind of lifeline uh, of supplies that they need to hold out against a, a larger Russian military. And it is absolutely absurd that the reason that we can't even have a vote on this is because some Speaker of the House is worried about losing his job to a bunch of MAGA lunatics in his caucus. When we know that if it was put to a straight up or down vote in the House, it would pass with mm. pretty healthy amounts of Republican support here. So I think it is worth uh, dialing up the pressure here because that's what the stakes are in real life, in the real world, not in the kind of MAGA world of uh, Republican politics in Washington. So to your point, and you certainly know Washington better than I do, is Biden's only path here to go through Mike Johnson? I mean, is there anything Biden can do to help the situation in Ukraine without needing to work with, as Liz Cheney called it, the Putin wing of the Republican Party that includes people like MAGA Mike Johnson? Yeah, I think the only way that you get the kind of robust package that is absolutely required is to kind of work through Mike Johnson or to find some other procedural way to force a vote. Uh, in the House of Representatives. Obviously, Mike Johnson could bring that bill to the floor tomorrow if he wanted to. Um, there are other lengthier and more problematic and challenging procedural ways uh, to try to force a vote that, uh, frankly, would take time and are not guaranteed uh, to succeed. Absent that, absent passing a supplemental, there are things that the administration could do to try to move around stockpiles in Europe, try to resupply the Ukrainians that way. But let's be clear, that's not anywhere near the efficiency of just passing this bill. Uh, and anywhere near the scale of what the Ukrainians need. Um, and so I do think after a long time of trying to work with Republicans and attach border provisions to the bill in the Senate, all of that months that have been put into trying to make this easier for the Republican Party to move this forward, I think the only way is real pressure and pointing out the real life stakes that are involved uh, in this being held up like this. Let me ask you really quickly about uh, sanctions. President Biden said that uh, the U.S. will unveil sanctions against Russia on Friday in response to the killing of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Uh, if you were in charge of those sanctions, what would they entail? What might they look like? And would it be an appropriate response here? You know, I frankly just don't think that there's some additional sanction that's going to make much difference here. The Russians have learned to live and frankly evade and work around uh, really robust sanctions. I think that a couple of things that you want to put on the table is there are several hundred billion dollars in frozen Russian reserves. Trying to expedite ways to get that money into the hands of the Ukrainians uh, is something I think that should be looked at. And frankly, another thing is someone who uh, spoke with Alexei Navalny over the years doing a bit of what he did, which is exposing the corruption uh, and kleptocracy uh, of the Russian regime uh, and, and their cronies, uh, kind of taking up the mantle of spotlighting the uncomfortable things that Putin didn't want spotlighted, whether it's his wealth or the wealth of his cronies or how he steals money from his people. So there are things that can be done, I think, in addition to kind of whatever sanctions are introduced. I also think there should be open-ended efforts to pr pr like pursue accountability and justice for the people that killed Navalny. Uh, and I don't think that that will necessarily yield results immediately. But you want people to know in that system, in that Russian system, that so long as they're around, right. there are going to be efforts to hold them accountable. So there's a range of things that I think can and should be done. I, I don't think we should sit here and pretend like a few more sanctions uh, are going to have a huge consequence here, though. Yeah, but the important message is accountability, no matter how long it yeah. takes. Uh, ben Rhodes, always a pleasure. It's great to see you. Thank you so much for your time tonight. And we have one more story for you tonight. The plan by Trump and his allies to infuse a second term administration with Christian nationalism. The journalist behind this new reporting joins me next.
New reporting from Politico today points to a broad concerted effort between Donald Trump and his allies who are preparing to enter Christian nationalism in his next administration should he win a second term. Uh, Politico reports the person leading this effort is Russell Vogt, president of the Center for Renewing America think tank, a leading group in a conservative consortium preparing for a second Trump term. Now, Vote sees his and his organization's mission as a renewing of consensus of America as a nation under God, per a statement on CRA's website. Freedom of religion would remain a protected right, but Vote and his ideological brethren would not shy from using their administration positions to promote Christian doctrine and imbue public policy with it. Joining me now is Heidi Prisbella, national investigative correspondent for Politico. Uh, Heidi, it's great to see you again. Thank you so much for making time for us. So Russell Vogt, he served as Trump, uh, Trump's director at the Office of Management and Budget. He is named as a possible contender to be Trump's chief of staff in a possible second term. How has Vogt gained this level of influence with Donald Trump? And that is why we're writing about Volk, because he is the one with the influence. We know that he speaks with Trump regularly, and we've already seen Trump echo some of his ideas, for instance, in terms of withdrawing from NATO. Uh, Russell Volk, we know, has very strong opinions on the border. He says that Jesus was not an open border person. But this goes beyond that. Amen. And that is why we're writing this story, because the Christian nationalism that we're talking about is also influenced by a person named William Wolfe, who we know Russell Vogt is close to. He's also a former Trump official, and his ideas are much more extremist. We're talking about here not just isolationism, immigration. We're talking about ending same-sex marriage, abortion, reducing access to contraceptives, but also surrogacy, uh, no-fault divorce sex education in public schools. These are things that William Wolfe has all already written about. He's retracted a number of tweets that he's put out um, about these issues, but we know that he is an inspiration for Russell Volk, that they are very close, and that according to the documents that we obtained, the difference between where we've been in the past with Christian nationalism and uh, religion influencing conservatives is that they have an actual plan, right? This is, we're talking about bullet points to make this a top priority in administration, which is why we're kind of drilling down on specifics of what this could possibly mean beyond what Russ has said publicly, Amen. And the interesting thing here, Heidi, is that Russell's uh, Russell Vote Center for Renewing America think tank is really not the only group focused on Trump's second term. You've outlined a little bit more about the personalities, but you've also got more prominent ones, more visibly known ones like the Heritage Foundation, which has not been involved in this Project 2025, an effort to uproot the so-called deep state bureaucracy. Uh, in what ways do their interests overlap, if at all? It's really good that you brought that up because Russ is advising Project 2025. Project 2025 has a number of these groups on their board, and they say in their mandate for leadership, which is like a 900-page document, that they explicitly want to put uh, God and Christianity back into civic life in America. And they have some pretty specific ideas here. I would point your attention to two pieces of this puzzle in Project 2025, which is really kind of like the roadmap. They want to do a lot through the Department of Health and Human Services, as well as the FDA when it comes to, uh, we know, the abortion pill, potentially uh, withdrawing approval of that, uh, contraceptive coverage. And then you also have groups like the Ethics and Public Policy Center, which have been 
openly uh, targeting issues like IVF, um, as well as hormonal birth control. Now, this may come as a shock to folks who are listening right now, because we've always talked in Christian conservative circles about just like a couple of issues like abortion and same-sex marriage, that this would go so far as to target issues like reducing access to contraception. But this is this is not fringe, Eamon. We're already right. seeing this in the influencer community in uh, circles like Turning Point USA, which held a recent conference for young women where they said, look, you need to ditch your hormonal birth control. It's not healthy. Um, they also talked about uh, criticizing daycare, for instance. And if you look at kind of the roots of a lot of this, there's a belief in Orthodox Christian communities that the family has been breaking down over the past decades and that at the heart of this, at the root of it, has was the uh, sexual revolution, which was based on access by women to hormonal birth control. Yeah, and you're starting to see some of those signals make their way to the Supreme Court, even with the, the headline that we read earlier in the show from Samuel Alito questioning whether same-sex marriage uh, remains legal or should remain legal in this country. Uh, Heidi Prisbella, always a pleasure. Thank you so much uh, for your time Thanks, and for your excellent reporting. And that is our show for tonight. Alex Wagner will be back here tomorrow evening. You can catch me on weekends every Saturday and Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern right here on MSNBC.